Amen. Keith Green was a popular Christian singer in the 1970s. Keith had been a hippie, a 60s flower child. Like his peers, he had searched for truth in Eastern religion. But one day, he had a thought. Every guru that he had ended up listening to had referenced a person named Jesus. All these exotic religions that he had studied had tried to justify their teaching by drawing a link back to Jesus. It dawned on Keith, maybe I should just find out about Jesus. Well, he purchased a Bible and he spent some time considering Jesus. And it changed his life forever. And it would do us some good if we considered Jesus to find meaning and to gain strength and to open up our minds to wisdom and to touch the very presence of God, you and I should spend time considering Jesus. Thus, Hebrews chapter 3 begins, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And yet, tragically, the Hebrew believers who first received this letter were proof that in this world, we are easily distracted from Jesus. It's so easy to take our eyes off of Jesus. You remember Peter walking on the water? As long as he focused on the Lord, he was fine. But as soon as he saw the wind, that it was boisterous, he became afraid and he sank. And today, the winds of, and waves of circumstance, the boisterousness of modern living can steal our vision of Jesus. Life can get so hectic, so frenetic, that we forget what really matters, that we begin to focus on trivialities. You know, we become preoccupied with peripherals, and we forget what is at the heart and core of our lives. One commentator encourages us, if you would deal aright with the circumference, live at the center. From your daily world, come back evermore to Jesus, that from Jesus you may better go back to the world, bearing the peace and power of the Lord himself upon you. I agree. While Jesus was in Jerusalem, a Greek delegation approached his disciples. In John chapter 12, verse 21, we're told that they asked Philip simply, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This should always be our prayer, our priority. We wish to see Jesus. Verse 1 tells us, consider Christ. And then verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now, as we mentioned last week, the book of Hebrews was written to a band of Jewish believers struggling with their Jewish roots. They had embraced Jesus as Messiah, but what about the traditions of Judaism? Spouses and parents and siblings and community leaders were exerting tremendous pressure on these converts to Christ. The opponents of Christianity were adamant. Faith in Jesus was not enough. They also needed to obey the rules and adhere to the rituals of Judaism. These Hebrews were struggling to sort out their allegiances. In this book, the author compares the institutions of Judaism 
with the person of Jesus. And he concludes there's no comparison. Jesus is better than any other way of relating to God. It's best to believe in a risen Christ than it is to follow the precepts of a dead religion. In chapters 1 and 2, we're shown that Jesus is better than the prophets, the law, and the angels. Now in chapters 3 and 4, the writer explains how that Jesus is also better than Moses and Joshua. And no one was more revered among the Jews than Moses, verse 3. For this one, that is Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As we learned in verse 2, Moses was a faithful representative of God. Again, among the Hebrews, he was not only the most revered Jew who ever lived, but also the greatest human. Moses was a hero with no peers. Except for one incident, he had faithfully led Israel for 40 years. Talk about a resume. Moses' resume was unparalleled. Moses spoke to God from a bush that burned yet wasn't consumed. He later spoke to God face to face on Mount Sinai. He welded miraculous power and parted the Red Sea. He humbled a tyrannical Pharaoh in a mighty Egypt. He liberated his people from 400 years of slavery. Moses delivered God's law to his people and to the world. God's law is forever called the law of Moses. He relaunched a massive nation and sculpted a band of former slaves into a fighting army. He struck a rock and out came water. He led three million Israelis through a barren desert. In fact, Moses was so revered by the people of Israel, when he died, the archangel Michael buried Moses' body in a hidden grave so no one would be tempted to worship his bones. Talk about a resume. Years ago, Israeli General Ariel Sharon and George Bush, they were scheduled for a meeting. Well, Sharon was late, and Bush was upset. Sharon told him, he said, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but I've been talking to someone more important than you. Bush was thinking, how dare him? Who could be more important than the American president? Sharon told him, he says, I was talking to Moses. Bush was impressed. Moses? Wow, can I talk to Moses? Well, Sharon pulled out his cell phone. He punched in a number. Bush watched him talking on his cell phone, whispering back and forth. Finally, Sharon, he turns to George W. and he says, Mr. President, he says, I'm sorry, but Moses says he doesn't want to talk to you. The last time he talked to a bush, it cost him 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> well, it's true, Moses is more important than any American president. But in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews assures us that he pales in comparison to the king of kings. For Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. In the construction of the house or the nation of Israel, Moses was a tool in God's hand. But Jesus is the builder of that house. Jesus is a divine contractor. In Matthew 16, the Lord declared, I will build my church. Jesus is building God's kingdom. Verse 4 says, For every house is built by someone, 
but he who built all things is God. And notice the implication here. If God builds all things and Jesus builds the church, then Jesus must be God. Here's another powerful proof text for the deity of Christ. Jesus is the builder of the house of God, a member of the Godhead. Moses was just a hammer in the toolbox. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house. Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus eclipses him. He is God's son. You know, Moses compared to Jesus is like Dan Quinn compared to Arthur Blank. Quinn coaches the Falcons, but King Arthur, man, he owns the team. Moses was a hired hand. Jesus is the heir. And notice another implication in verse 6. The church is referred to as Jesus' own house. Did you know you and I are considered the house in which Jesus dwells? He hangs out among us. He is revealed through our fellowship. That is, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. God's children don't just believe, they continue in their faith. Throughout Hebrews, we find it's clear that a believer's membership in God's family, in essence, our very salvation, depends on the perseverance of our faith, whose house we are if we hold fast, firm to the end. And to illustrate this need for perseverance, the writer of Hebrews reminds the Jews of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. You see, the ancient Hebrews began well, but they ended poorly because they didn't continue in their faith. Verse 7, thus as the Holy Spirit says, and here he quotes from Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. See, rather than trust God, they tested and tried God. The wilderness wanderers pushed God's patience. You know, the Hebrews who exited Egypt refused to take God at his word. They insisted over and over that he had to do something to prove himself. You know, you'd think Moses turning the river to blood or parting the Red Sea, would have sealed their faith forever. But realize, miracles alone are not what produce faith. I think you'll find that more often than not, all miracles create is a desire for more miracles. Faith grows by taking God at His word. See, God has done more than enough miracles already to prove Himself to us. It's now time we rested In his promises. In verse 10, God said of the faithless Jews who tested him, Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. The Jews who followed Moses, they were well acquainted with God's works. For 40 years, they saw miracles on a daily basis. The problem, though, is they never learned God's ways. You know, you can treat God like a circus act. 
You can sit back and hope he performs. Maybe he'll hang from a trapeze or get shot out of a cannon or something. But boy, let's not sit at his feet and learn from him a better way to live. Even today, folks want to see miracles. Then they turn around and they do life their own way. This was the approach that God rejected. Hey, look for God's works without listening to his words, without living his way, and he'll sentence you to perpetual restlessness. You can kiss the peace of God goodbye. You'll spend your whole life wandering in a spiritual wilderness. God promises that in verses 11 and 12. He said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And then verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, the hardening of a heart is such a subtle occurrence. It can begin on a spiritual high point. I mean, after you've climbed that mountain, after you've overcome that obstacle, won that victory, that's when you're most tempted to think that you're at the end of your struggle. Oh, now I can coast. Rather than stretch forward, we tend to sit back. No longer trusting the Savior. We trust in our circumstances. And it hardens us to the voice and to the call of God's Spirit. That's why the writer of Hebrews here exhorts or encourages us to challenge each other daily. Challenge each other while it's called today. Never take a day off from faith, he's telling us. Keep walking with Jesus. In other words, it's not enough to have faith. We have to continue in that faith. For... We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Notice this is an if statement. It's conditional. We'll be a partaker of Christ and all of His blessings if we cross the finish line with our faith intact, if we continue steadfast to the end. See, the Hebrews had started well. They'd embraced the sufficiency of Christ with their whole heart. Jesus was all they needed. But doubts had crept in. Their confidence had waned. They weren't so sure that Jesus would be enough for them. What about the law, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, the feast, all the trappings of Judaism they'd left behind? You see, their initial faith was unraveling. They were warned, you become a partaker of Christ, not by having faith, but by continuing in that faith, steadfast to the end. And then verse 15, while it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And again, he quotes these familiar verses, Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. Every Jew had this passage memorized. It was used in the Jewish synagogues to call the people to their evening worship. And yet, sadly, though the Hebrews heard these words week after week, most of them never took heed. Apparently, hearing and heeding are not the same. In the late 1950s, a conversation occurred between a Boeing engineer and a passenger 
right after the introduction of Boeing's first commercial jet, the 707. Well, the employee of the manufacturer spoke confidently about the precision of the new airplane's engineering and the extensive testing that the aircraft had undergone. Well, finally, the passenger asked, he said, have you ever flown in the 707? The confident engineer answered, no, I think I'll wait until it's been flying for a while. (laughs) See, it's one thing to acquire and admire information. It's quite another thing to act on that information. To hear is not to heed. The Hebrews knew the facts about Christ. Now they needed to apply faith to those facts and to hold fast. He says, for who, having heard, rebelled? He returns to his analogy of Israel and their resistance in the wilderness. Just because you believe once doesn't mean that you can't later rebel. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? See, the same folks who believed God in Egypt later died in the wilderness. Even mighty Moses couldn't ensure the continuation of their faith. Moses could break the will of a stubborn Pharaoh. He could put miracles on display. He could split the vast ocean. He could bring bread from heaven. But he couldn't convince the hard-hearted Hebrews to persist in their faith. Moses failed to bring his people into God's promises. With the exception of two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, the generation that exited Egypt died in the wilderness. And as godly a man as Moses was, he failed in his mission. Moses brought Israel out of Egyptian bondage, but he couldn't bring them into God's blessing. And this describes many Christians today. Well, they've been saved out of Egypt And they've crossed the Red Sea of their baptism. But their faith then gets challenged. And rather than press on, they grow bitter. Or they become fearful. They're saved, but they stall. They're forgiven, but far from victorious. They have peace with God, but the peace of God, but they lack peace with God. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. They have the peace with God, but they lack the peace of God. Rather than enjoying the milk and honey God promised them, they keep longing for what they left behind in Egypt. In short, a faith that was isn't necessarily a faith that is. How current is your faith? Oh, you've exited Egypt. You've come out of the sin of your past. But are you living short of God's blessing? That's the question. Verse 18 And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. When the moment of decision arrived at the threshold of Cana, only two men believed. The other ten spies saw the giants in the land and the fortified cities. All the obstacles, all twelve spies saw the same variables. But what the doubters saw as stumbling blocks, Joshua and Caleb saw as stepping stones. The difference? Eyes of faith. The two who believed entered in. The people that did it died in the wilderness. Chapter 4. Therefore, 
Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. You know, as a kid growing up in church, I heard people talk about sins and shortcomings. You ever heard that phrase? Sins and shortcomings? Well, I knew what sins were, but I often wonder what shortcomings. I often felt sorry for gentlemen under five foot eight. Maybe they were guilty. But a shortcoming is the sin of coming up short. Having watched three million Little League games in my lifetime, and now I'm starting over again with a grandson. After watching billions of Little League games over the years, I've seen kids slide into the base ahead of the throw. Everyone assumes they're safe, but then the dust clears, and there's the little guy's foot about eight inches short of the base. He came up short. Well, this is a shortcoming. You launch out on a faith journey, but you get derailed and you fail to finish. You don't get there. It's salvation without sanctification. It's forgiveness without fulfillment. It's deliverance without delight. The Hebrews had exited Egypt But the nation under Moses came up short of entering the promised land. Does this describe your life? You know, you've come out of Egypt, but are you enjoying the blessings that God has for you? And here was their mistake, verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith, in those who heard it. Here was the problem. The Hebrews heard God's word, but they never mixed it with faith. You know, on the cover of all Bibles, under the title Holy Bible, it should read, Mixed with Faith. It doesn't work without faith. The key to entering God's rest, enjoying His blessing, is faith. And to prove it, he cross-references now several other verses. He says, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, and he quotes Psalm 95, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's Genesis 2. And again in this place, back to Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. See, here's an amazing truth. God has finished his work. On the seventh day, God rested from creation. And God has been resting ever since. God fashioned a perfect world. Nothing was lacking in all that God had done. And this remains God's posture today. He's left nothing undone. There are no loose ends that God needs to tie up. Remember, when Jesus died on the cross, he uttered, It is is finished. God has it all under control, friends. He never gets uptight. With God, the end has been worked out from the beginning. Today, God is relaxing, and he wants us to join him in that rest. In fact, he's invited us to enter into God's own rest. You know, when my kids were little, I owned a hammock. And whenever I finished my yard work, 
I'd spend a few minutes, actually maybe a couple hours, recovering in the hammock. And my little kids always enjoyed joining me. Whatever they were doing, they would stop and they would run to the hammock and they would jump on dead and they would swing with me in the hammock. And here the father is inviting his kids to join him in his hammock. But we have to stop emphasizing what we're doing, even for God. And we have to rest in what he has done for us. See, we join him in his rest, not produce our own. Rather than focus on our achievements, we find his joy. We take our hope in him. We trust in his sufficiency. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he had a little jingle he was fond of quoting. God speaks to us, bear not a single care thyself. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone. Thy work to rest in me. On the seventh day, God rested, and he's still resting. And now he wants us to adopt that same posture. He wants us to mix his truth with faith. Rather than working to get my life under control, I need to start living by faith as if God were in control. For the last time I checked, I think he is. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. See, God entered his own rest after his creation. And he invited the Hebrews to join him in that rest after he brought them into the promised land. Unfortunately, they failed to experience his promise for lack of faith. But 400 years later, through the pen of David in Psalm 95, God issued his promise again. Long after Israel's failure in the wilderness, God still promises, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, the writer of Hebrews is proving to his readers that God's rest is still available to God's people. He promised his rest to Moses and his followers in 1445 B.C. He reiterated that promise 400 years later in Psalm 95. The point is is that God's rest is still available even today. There is a rest for God's people, for all of God's people, for all of time. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Even Joshua, Moses' successor, failed to bring Israel into God's rest. Thus David still made the offer years later. Israel had two national heroes, Moses and Joshua, but neither of them brought God's people into God's rest. That's why verse 9 tells us, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And Jesus is better than both Moses and Joshua because he can lead us into God's rest. And the next few verses tell us how. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And when God entered his rest, it involves ceasing from his work. For six days during the creation, God performed certain tasks. But once his work was finished, he rested. 
But I don't think that rest involved any kind of inaction. I mean, God didn't become comatose. The difference was that for six days, God did what was obligatory. On the seventh day, his activity became celebratory. And there's a big difference, isn't there? Obligation is required work, whereas celebration is responsive work. And this is what it means to enter God's rest, not to become inactive, but to realize that on the cross, Jesus did all that needed to be done for us to be right with God. It is finished. I can now add nothing to what Jesus has done. My requirement was fulfilled by Christ. I'm no longer under obligation. And when I realize this, it produces a rest. This is my freedom. This is my joy. Now what I do for God is out of celebration, not obligation. I still serve God. I praise Him. I pray. I witness. But not to earn God's favor, but because I already have it in Christ. That's why verse 11 tells us, Let us therefore be diligent, that is labor, to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. At first, this sounds contradictory. We labor to rest. And yet, here's the point. Entering God's rest does take a major effort. We need to hold fast to Jesus. We need to have faith in Jesus. Consider Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Corey Timboon once said, Look within and be depressed. Look without and be distressed. But look to Jesus and be at rest. And you see, it takes effort to keep looking in the right direction. It takes effort to have faith, to avoid the distractions and to hold fast to Jesus. Having faith isn't passive, it's active. It's an aggressive thing. It's looking and focusing and holding and clutching onto Jesus. We don't labor to earn God's rest. It can't be earned. It's a free gift, but we labor to enter it. And to enjoy it. Think of the difference between digging a ditch and planning a party. Trust me, digging a ditch is obligation, whereas planning a party is celebration. But both are labor. Only the former seems like it, though. It may sound contradictory, but it's not. We labor to enter God's rest. And then verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. All it takes for miracles to occur is for you to mix a little faith with God's Word. The Word of God is powerful, but you need to mix it with faith. Here he says the Word is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. This Greek word translated sword, it refers to the Roman short sword or the dagger. It was an ancient weapon used in hand-to-hand, close-range combat. And this is how God's Word works. When we apply it personally at close range to our individual hearts, it has the ability to penetrate a facade and to knife through our resistance. He says the Bible is living and powerful and sharp. The Bible's living or active. It has a life of its own. It's powerful or effective. It can transform a life, and it's sharp or incisive. It can cut to the chase and get right to the point. 
It uncovers the real heart issues. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It slices coming and going. It's not only a weapon to use on the enemy. It's a surgeon's scalpel that the Holy Spirit turns on us. The Holy Spirit does open heart on the inner man. The scriptures are able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. In other words, God's word untangles flesh from faith. It sorts out what's of me and what's of God. Isn't that important? It differentiates between the heavenly and the human. We're told the Bible is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Once a young man, he walked into an old country barber shop. This shop was decorated with trophies of wild animals. There was a mounted deer head on the wall, and then there was a wild fox and a wild turkey and several stuffed birds sitting up on the shelf. But this young man wasn't impressed. He happened to be studying taxidermy, and he was extremely critical of the work. In fact, he pointed to the owl sitting up on the shelf, and he said, Look at those drooping wings. And that crooked leg and the angle of its head, it looks so unnatural. He went on and on with his critique until suddenly the owl turned its head and winked. (laughs) The bird was alive. The fellow had been criticizing the lifelikeness of a live bird. And this is true of the Bible's critics. They're critiquing a live book. Hey, berate this book. Deny it. Say what you want about the Bible. But when it's ready, friend, it'll fly off the shelf to do exactly as it pleases. It's the one book that's self-propelled. When you hear God's word and mix it with faith, the author himself works in you to help you grasp its meaning. It transforms your life. And then verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees everything. I once had a couple come to me for marriage counseling. And when they sat down, they informed me right off the bat. They didn't want anyone to know they were having any problems, especially God. Sorry. He is the one true know-it-all. Nothing is hidden from God. There's no secret he does not know. You know, folks today worry that Big Brother might be eavesdropping in on their private communications. Hey, Big Brother's the least of your problems. You have a Father God who is exposed to it all. Your encryptions don't work on God. He sees your emails. He knows your texts. He hears your calls. Nothing is hidden from God. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And here's another reason to hold on to our faith in Jesus. He is a great high priest, better than the priests of Judaism. Once a lady, she was pulled over by the cops. The officer noticed that her license required that she should be wearing eyeglasses. They were missing. When the policeman inquired, he said, uh, she said to him, she said, but officer, I have contacts. Policeman said to her, lady, I don't care who you know, you got to wear glasses when you drive. (laughs) 
I almost messed that up, but I, I caught myself. You get it? Yeah. It's true, though. Sometimes it's not as much what you know as it is who you know. It's contacts. It's connections. They go a long way in life and even further in the life to come. This is why one of the central components of Jewish religion was its system of priests and Levites. Of the 12 tribes, an entire tribe was devoted to attend to the nation's relationship with God. The tribe of Levi's sole occupation was to intercede for the people with God. And this gave the Hebrews great confidence. When they sinned, they had a contact who would go to bat for them. And of all the priests, the one with the most clout was the high priest. Once a year, he would enter the holiest room in the temple and he would pay off the nation's sin with a sacrifice. Yet as believers in Jesus, these Hebrews had turned their back on the priesthood. To the shock of parents and friends, they'd thrown away this confidence. And they were being asked, if you no longer reverence the priesthood, how are you expecting to gain access to God? Well, according to verse 14, the Hebrews still had a priest. And not just a high priest, but a great high priest. For Jesus himself entered not just an earthly temple, but into heaven itself. These Hebrews had not lost confidence at all. They had gained a greater confidence. He writes in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Unlike the Jewish priest, Jesus was the perfect priest. He's God, thus he clearly represents God's truth. But he's also man, and he closely understands our needs. For years, entertainer Bob Hope, he led trips to Vietnam to humor the troops. Once reminiscing on his USO shows, he made the statement. He said, all I ever saw was these kids laughing and applauding. I never knew what they were going through until I saw a couple of movies like Platoon and Hamburger Hill. What courage they had in fighting a war we wouldn't let them win. Unlike Bob Hope's visits to Vietnam, when Jesus visited earth, he didn't stay on the stage just to entertain us. He invaded the jungle. He got into the trenches. He was subjected to the napalm and the sniper fire. He fought the battle as one of the troops and prevailed, yet without sin. You know, here we're told Jesus was tempted in all points as we are. You know what that means? That means Jesus had an active libido and a curiosity and a temper with a fuse. Jesus was a man and vulnerable to all the temptations that men are vulnerable to. And yet he never caved in. Jesus was tempted with everything Satan has ever thrown at you and me, yet he never succumbed. He was born sinless and stayed sinless, and as a result, he is perfectly suited now to help us win our struggle for purity. You know, I've met people who question Jesus' empathy. You know, who'll say, if the Son of God never sinned, then how can he truly understand what I face? The lure of darkness, the pull of sin on my life. How can he truly understand? C.S. Lewis answers that question. Let me read it to you, his his response. He says, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. 
You find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. You see, Jesus knows a lot more than we think. See, a thin rubber band can be stretched only so far and it pops, snaps. It never experiences a high degree of tension since it snaps before a greater tension can be applied. But take a thicker rubber band. It can handle more. You can stretch it further because it refuses to break. So which rubber band feels the greatest tension? Obviously, the rubber band that refuses to break. And the fact that Jesus didn't break enables him to, enabled him to endure all that Satan could muster. You know, we whimper, we quibble. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Oh, yes, they do. Consider Jesus. Your temptation is kid stuff compared to what our Lord endured. He knows your struggle and how you can win the victory. And since Jesus understands, verse 16 tells us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need or literally when we need it the most. God gives us mercy and grace and comfort and power. The exact power that we need when we need it most. I love this paraphrase of verse 16. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. Will you do that this morning? Will you take the mercy and accept the help? Hey, when you go to God, you don't have to make an appointment ahead of time. You can walk right in, not haughtily, but humbly, not rudely, but righteously. You can enter into God's throne room like you belong, for in Christ you do. Jesus secures for us access. Let's walk into God's presence this morning. Let's come unashamedly and unreservedly and uninhibitedly. Let's come to Him just as we are. The sacrifice is done. The access has been won. Let's come boldly to find help for what we need and rest for our weary souls.